Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Welcome back today to, um, to part four of a sermon series that we've been in um, called Intentional Parenting. Intentional Parenting. I think it's been a pretty fun series. I don't know about you. Um, we're nearing the end of it. We have one more week next week. It'll be a very special week where we're going to do a little bit of a different sort of interview style sermon. You want to be here for that. But uh, here's a quick recap of where we've been so far. Week one, we focused on the word intentionality. If you're here, intentionality. And it was really just a plea for intentionality and parental responsibility in our church. Week two, we focused on the word vision. Vision. And I think if anything, go back and re-listen to this one if you've missed all of them before, because it was a really practical weekend. We basically walked uh, through four worksheets uh, that help you, one, catch a vision for what you want your kids to be in Christ, and then two, operationalize that into a plan. Uh, Last week in week three, we talked about initiation or initiating our kids into the realities of life and faith. Very important. And today, to close the series, I want to focus on this one key word that I have highlighted on the screen. And that's story. Story. Because I believe this is our most important responsibility as parents. Imparting on our kids the story of God and the way of Jesus. Because we believe the story is the key of everything, right? It's the key to everything. It's the key to the joy and peace you want your kids to be able to experience. Uh, It's the key to them discovering their identity and who God made them to be. It's the key to lasting eternal success. It's the key to virtue. It's the key to wisdom. It's the key to facing down adversity. It's the key to them just becoming like a good person. It's the key. Okay, hey, more important than them making the travel team. More important than them reading above grade level. More important than there being no food dyes in what they eat. More important than their fashion, staying on trend. More important than passing the AP exam or getting into college or graduating college or getting a good job or becoming a contributing member of society. More important than all of those things, and those aren't bad things, but more important than all those things is you imparting on them the story of Jesus. And it's more important than ever to take that seriously because I believe it's more difficult than ever to do it. Now, parents, let's be honest, okay? Parenting in this day and age can be pretty fear-inducing, can it? It's gonna be like a a scary endeavor uh, (laughs) to raise a kid today. David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Group. They're like a, a research organization that researches all things Christian. And, uh, and he, he recently said this. He said that Christianity is in an irreversible death spiral of decline in the United States. Super encouraging news. Uh, and he said the only way we could stop it is, is if, if these two things happen. One, we see a movement of radical discipleship between parents and kids. And two, 
we see a revival-like move of God. Otherwise, the church is going to like bottom out in the West and our hope is in the global South and the East, which by the way, the church is crushing it there. Now, for what it's worth, that's why I've paired the two sermon series this, this summer that we've had, like summer of prayer and intentional parenting. I'm not just shooting from the hip up here, y'all, like making it up week to week, all right? Uh, I think we honestly need an uprising of intentional parents doing radical discipleship alongside of a supernatural outpouring of God's power. And that's not beyond possibility. Okay, so missiologist uh, Ed Stetzer um, did a presentation that I witnessed uh, a couple of years ago um, where he elaborated on, on Kinnaman's insights. Stetzer basically said this. He said, Christianity isn't collapsing per se in our country. It's being clarified. Interesting. And his basic uh, prediction was over the next several decades, what we're going to see is nominal believers decrease rapidly while committed Christians grow steadily. Let me say that again. The prediction, and he's not the only one making this, several people make, I agree with him on this. Uh, what we're gonna see over the next few decades is nominal Christians will decrease rapidly while committed Christians will increase steadily. Now, real quick, what's a nominal Christian? See that hand in the back, go ahead. What is it, Tyler? Okay, well, a nominal Christian is what we might like uh, call a lukewarm Christian uh, or a, a cultural Christian. It's somebody who's a Christian uh, because of the relational pressure. You know, well, it would just disappoint mom, so we're gonna go to Easter this year. It would just disappoint granny, so we're gonna get the baby baptized or whatever, right? There's, there's relational pressure. Or it's somebody who's a Christian because of social benefit. It's actually socially advantageous for them to be a Christian. Now, the best example of that is if we rewind historically back to the fourth century when Constantine becomes um, the emperor of the Roman Empire and, and he makes Christianity the favored religion. For the first three centuries Christianity existed, it was a minority fringe movement that was persecuted sometimes throughout the Roman Empire. But all of a sudden, Constantine comes along, he makes it the favored religion, and for the first time, Christians don't have to worry about being persecuted. They don't have to worry about being thrown into the Colosseum and eaten by lions in front of cheering and roaring cloud, uh, crowds. Uh, like it's, actually, it's actually like uh, cool to be a Christian. It will get you more business. It'll get you more friends. People look at you highly and see you as more virtuous because of your Christian values. Amazing, right? So guess what happened? More people became Christians. And the nominal Christian was born. Now, today though, it actually works in the opposite direction. It is not socially advantageous uh, to be a Christian. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Social benefit is, is disappearing. Orthodox Christianity is either seen as harmful, oppressive, and antiquated by one side, or as un-American, woke, and weak by the other. Because of that, nominal Christians have no reason to stay Christian. So a lot of them are just sort of disappearing. Like they're identifying as nuns or agnostic or spiritual but not religious. You know, evangelical has become more of a political term than a Christian one. And what's happening is it's chipping away at the market share that Christianity has on the American population. Now, Stetzer went on in the, the presentation to show some really interesting statistics. And, um, and these are just approximations because I can't remember exactly what he said, but these, these are pretty close. Um, uh, he went on to uh, show 
that while approximately 70% of the American population still identifies as Christians, only 25% of the population are what we would call committed Christians. Like they believe the hard things and they do the hard things of faith. And again, he's predicting, and I agree, that over the next couple decades, what we will likely see is the people who identify with Christianity will shrink down to about 30 to 40% of the population. Why? Because nominal Christians are checking out. But that 30 to 40% that's left will grow steadily and they will be people who are all in. They will be people whose religion is not inherited or nominal, rather it's chosen and thought out. And I'm excited for that. This, by the way, is what scripture calls a remnant. And a remnant is fertile soil for revival. So have no fear, mom and dad. Have no fear, Christians. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is on the right side of history. Look at history. As nations and rulers and cultural heresies and trends rise and fall, Christ's church is still 2,000 years strong. So the real story today isn't whether or not Christianity survives. Rather, it's whether we and our children will be part of the remnant that will most certainly survive. And if we'd like to be, I think one of the keys for parents is to learn to tell Jesus' story. In a culture that just isn't. So today I want to show you how. I actually want to give you a framework to think about how to emphasize Jesus' story with your kids. And I think if you can get these three things right, um, make them sort of reflexes, instincts, constant conversations and points of emphasis in your home, you'll you'll be off to a good, good start. Here are the three. One, we have to learn how to identify and challenge the stories our popular culture is telling. Two, we have to teach the Christian story as different and revolutionary. I've chosen those words on perfect. We'll get to that in a second. Different and revolutionary. And three, we have to model it, to model the faith well for our kids. One, we've got to identify and challenge the stories popular culture is telling. Two, we've got to teach the Christian story as different and truly revolutionary. And three, we've got to model it in the home. That's the key. All right, ready? Let's start with number one first. We've got to identify and challenge the stories our popular culture is telling. Um, one of the most helpful classes I took in seminary uh, was a class on cultural exegesis. Everybody say cultural exegesis. There you go. Okay, so you bring it up over brunch later today, over chips and salsa. Your friends are going to think, wow. What did you guys talk about in church today? Cultural exegesis. Like, you're going to be like, wow. All right, now, the academics have a really, really keen way of making pretty simple things um, incredibly difficult to understand. So exegesis just really kind of means interpretation, cultural interpretation. Uh, Basically, the point of the class was to teach pastors how to look at anything in our culture, a commercial, a movie, a politician, a news commentary on a world-breaking event, a new technology, architecture, sports, a mission statement from a Fortune 500 company, a, a piece of congressional literature, anything. It taught us how to look at any cultural artifact and then evaluate it biblically based on the following questions. These are important. Write these down. One, what is this trying to teach me? Two, how is this going to form me? And three, does the teaching and formation align with scripture? 
Now, uh, again, valuable class. And I'm not sure why just pastors need to learn this. Because it seems to me like this is a pretty important skill for everyone. Basically, instead of allowing our popular culture to just impose its will and its beliefs and its moral vision on us, we were taught in this class to use our brains and to critically evaluate it through Scripture. Now, uh, as parents, I have found that, uh, that we have filters. They're not necessarily Scripture. In fact, I found that parents tend to default to the following three filters when we evaluate the sort of things we you know, allow in our kids' life. First, um, there's the enjoyment filter. And they're in this order, by the way, the enjoyment filter. Will my kid enjoy this? Like, does this make them smile, happy, or laugh? And le again, let's just be honest. We give a disproportionate amount of weight to this first one. We're willing to allow all sorts of ethical exceptions and jump through all sorts of ethical loopholes if this will just distract my kids for an hour while I can take a nap. This is pretty big. Second, we have the achievement filter. Does this develop my kid, you know, towards the goals we have for them? And then third, we have the, the ethics filter. And does this feel age appropriate for my kids? And for the record, all of us have different standards for that. Now again, the problem is it's, it's usually that order. If our kids are enjoy it, we give so much rope ethically. And when it comes to our ethics, we don't take seriously enough Jesus' calling to formation, which is why I would suggest as Jesus followers, you should uh, embrace a different filter, this fourth filter, what I would call the formation filter, formation filter, which asks, who is this forming my kid into? Like, what is this teaching and how is this forming my child? Like, have you ever asked that? Have you ever asked, what's Frozen teaching my kid about what they should be doing with their life? Have you ever asked, how are screens impacting the relationships in our home? Uh, have you ever asked, what sort of emotional toll is daily engagement on social media taking on my children. Have you ever asked, uh, what is this Netflix series teaching my teenager about identity and purpose and morality and sexuality? Honestly, this week I was asking like, am I okay with how these Paw Patrol pups have endless access to millions of dollars of technology paid for by taxpayer money? <laughs> these are the moral dilemmas we gotta face down, y'all. Now, seriously, every cultural artifact is telling us a story. It's all, it's all telling us a story about life. And parents need to make it a regular practice to evaluate them and you should do it out loud with your kids and these questions really help. Put the three up there again. What is, what is this trying to teach me? How is this going to form me? And does the teaching and formation align with scripture? Now, I just wanna be clear. I'm not an advocate for sheltering your kids. That's not how I, how I personally roll. There's a time and place to introduce kids at different ages to different things. You gotta decide that on your own with your own kid and in your own home, right? I'm not an advocate for like totally sheltering them. I'm an advocate for teaching them how to think. Our kids need to realize that just because popular culture says something is normal and good doesn't mean it's normal and good. And here's why. 
So we need to become masters at the evaluation process and do it together with our kids. Are you following me on this? It's so vital. Okay, so these three questions are really, really good filters. Let me give you a, a different way of sort of processing here. A different way to unveil the stories of our culture for your kids um, is to just name them. To like name them. So this is what I'm gonna do. I, I'm, I'm gonna give you a list here. I'm gonna name, them, name some of them for you. Some of the more popular stories that are woven into our social imagination. And maybe this will just help you. Like next time you're watching the show or you're on the technology or whatever, you can just name the false gospel and start a conversation with your kid. By the way, I am calling them false gospels. I'm gonna talk about them in gospel language because I believe that that's what most of these stories are. What makes these stories so destructive to our kids and to our own lives is because they claim to offer salvation, purpose, identity, or worth somewhere other than Jesus. And that's a false gospel. We only go to Jesus for those things as the Jesus people. So, so here's just some of the false gospels that I've, I, I have found to be particularly prevalent. First, um, the gospel of achievement. Gospel of achievement. It's the idea that success, success is the key to life. So kids get the grades, practice harder, more activity, busier is better, compare, compete, conquer. By the way, they learn this one often by just simply watching you, mom, watching you, dad. Second one is the gospel of public approval. It's the idea that popularity is the key to life. My peers and my popularity define my worth. I am the sum of what others say about me or how many likes I get, views I get, hearts I get on social media. So lots of selfies, throw two filters on it. Make sure that there is a highlight reel version of you out there, even if it means taking that picture like 18 times to get just the right angle. Make sure you look good. Be the sage, be the comedian, be the victim. Now be the professional, beautiful model, whatever. Whatever it takes to get the applause and attention of others, do that. There's the gospel of affluence. Where you live, what you wear, and how much you have is the key to life. More, better, now. Stuff is enough. That's the idea here. Next is the gospel of feelings. Talked a lot about this last week. Getting in touch with your inner self is the key to life. That's what this one says. So follow your heart, make your truth, you do you. Next one's the gospel of sex. The idea that sexual freedom and fluidity is the key to life. Find your identity in your sexuality. Very popular in our culture today. Next one's the gospel of America. Traditional American values are the key to life. So let's get back to the good old days and make America great again. Republican means Christian. America is ordained by God. Look, that's, that's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. Next is the gospel of victimhood. See this a lot. Overthrowing the oppressors is the key to life. You find your worth, you find your purpose in claiming victim status or being an ally and taking on the power brokers who are the real evil. Next is the gospel of politics. The right candidates and the right legislation is the key to life. The next is the gospel of scientific enlightenment. Advancing science and technology is the key to life. Next is the gospel of freedom. Individual choice is the key to life. So do what you want, when you want, don't let anybody tell you what to do. You have your rights. 
You see how these work, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Will you do me a favor, Dee? Will you put those back up there just one more time? And I want you to look at all these. And I just want you to reflect. Can you see these stories in the culture that we run into every single day? Can you not? They're just woven therein. Unavoidable, really. Now, the thing is, is that there's some goodness in all of these. Every single one of them has, has goodness built in, which is what makes them compelling. But none of them are the Christian gospel, which says that Jesus and Jesus alone is the key to life. Yet we walk around all the time, we just act like, you know, well, this is just the way things are. It's just what makes sense. This is the best way to live. Part of the problem is that we're inundated nonstop by these false gospels. We're being evangelized by them relentlessly. It's the background noise of our life. And it's just so easy for us to gradually assume that this is reality. But I would argue that those gospels are just an example of one story. It's the story of popular culture. And I would suggest to you there's a better story, a story more in touch with reality, a story more tested by time. And that's Jesus. So we have to learn how to interrogate our culture with our kids. What is this telling me will make me happy? And will it really? And for how long? What is this saying is right or wrong? And does scripture agree? Who even made this? And what are they about? And why do you think they did it? How much of my time is this taking? Who is this platforming as a hero or a role model or a villain? Is this cultivating rage and hate towards others? Is this focusing my attention on things largely out of my control? Is this anxiety inducing or fear inducing? Does this make me a better spouse, parent, friend, classmate, student, brother, sister? Does this make me more like Jesus? These are the questions we should ask. And look, I, to be clear, I, I don't want us to be like painstakingly judgmental about everything. Because if we do that, our kids um, will turn off to religion for a whole different reason. I just think we need to teach our kids how to be sober, critical thinkers. That being said, one more time, do you throw the, throw the gospels back up there? Um, I, I think that you should not be afraid to point out the good things that come from these. To point them out. There is goodness found in all of these. It's good and enjoyable to achieve your goals or to be well-spoken of in your community. It's a good thing to generate wealth or to enjoy the goodness of God's creation. Freedom's a good thing. Your emotions and feelings are good things. Sex is a good thing. Patriotism, justice, politics, scientific discovery. All these things are good things. They just aren't made to be ultimate things. These good things were created by God to be enjoyed on his terms. And when we take good things and we make them into ultimate things, not only do we dethrone God, but over time, these good things destroy us because they weren't meant to be God's. But when we put these good things in their proper place, which is second place beneath God, what we experience is the joy that God created them for. So one more time, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, godmothers, and godfathers, all y'all. Okay, look, we have to become experts at identifying and challenging 
the stories our popular culture is telling with our kids. Now, second, mom, dad, we're not just cultural critics, are we? We also have to be disciple makers. So while we identify and challenge the stories that culture tells us, we also have to learn to teach the story that scripture tells of Jesus. And here's what I, what I have found. As I teach Jesus to my kids, I have found that it's most compelling to make sure that two things sink in. One, followers of Jesus are different. And two, we are the real revolutionaries. We're the real revolutionaries. So that's how I wanna posture Jesus' story. Different and revolutionary, that's our way. Listen, son, listen, daughter, let's make no mistake. We are not like the world. We're in it, but not of it. This is not our home. We are agents of a political revolution sweeping the planet. I used to be an orphaned rebel. But then I was adopted into the most powerful family in the universe. It's a royal family. And we're in the process of taking over the world. We have people planted in just about every nation. It's a conspiracy, a divine conspiracy that'll echo into eternity. That's our story. We're different. We're the real revolutionaries, you see? Now, uh, to help my kids understand the ways in which we are different, I think the easiest thing to do, you know, mom, dad, is to just compare and contrast Jesus's story with the stories that our culture tells. Like the framework's pretty simple. When you get an opportunity, you just say, well, that's the way the world sees it. Here's how Jesus sees it. Like, this is the way the world sees it. Fill in the blank. This is the way Jesus sees it. Fill in the blank. And there are endless opportunities that come up every single week to have these conversations. You say, okay, here's what I wanna do. Um, I wanna give you just a few. I'll give you a few examples of this is how the world sees it. This is how Jesus sees it. Okay, I wanna discuss some of like the bigger questions or bigger issues in our cultural moment. Many of these are ones that I'm not even there yet with my kids. Okay, I'm not talking, you know, with my four-year-old about mortality and destiny, okay? But, but I do talk with young people a lot about it. These are the things that middle school, high school, college students wonder about. These are the things that our culture is counterforming them away from the way of Jesus. And so you know, I think it's important to kind of wrap our heads around what this looks like. This is the way the world sees it. This is, this is the way scripture sees it. Okay, how about this one? Human origins, let's start there, human origins. There is no intentional design. Approximately 14 billion years ago, there was a random chance explosion that resulted in the complexity and beauty of this universe. Who banged the bang? No one. Like where did the supercharged ball of matter uh, or light come from that exploded into everything? We don't know. It's just science. This is the way the world sees it. But scripture says, in the beginning, an unfathomably created powerful, personal, and loving God made everything on purpose, including you. And we think that the order and the fine tuning and the irreducible complexity of creation, we think science is evidence for this. Let me show you, let me show you. You see how this works? This is the way the world sees it. This is the way scripture sees it. Okay, let's do another one. Uh, morality, morality. The world says, choose your own morality. That's the best way for civilized society. Make your truth. Follow your heart. You do you just as long as you're not hurting anyone. 
Your morality is constructed within. There's, there's no hell, there's no judgment, there's no divine judge or justice in the end, just a bunch of competing tastes. You better hope your taste has the most powerful people behind it. This is the way the world sees it. But scripture says there is such a thing as right and wrong, universally. We all sense that anyways. And a good and perfect God who loves us and promises us justice is the one who sets the standards. His word, not our heart. And one day he's going to hold evil accountable. And that's a good thing. How about human worth? Well, look around the world. The world is full of racism, political hatred, war, class distinctions. I mean, even just the cars you drive and the clothes you wear signal something to the world about your worth, right? But scripture says, all human beings are created in the image of God. God loves everyone unconditionally and actually he gives special attention to the poor, the forgotten, the oppressed, and the least among us. Beautiful. And we're called to do the same. What about power and wealth? Well, the world says get more of it. This is the key to significance and security and happiness anyways. Get more of it. But scripture says the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of many. We wash feet. We store up treasures in heaven by giving to the least and by giving beyond what's comfortable. It's a race to the bottom for us. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are your responsible for your neighbor. What about work? The world says this is one of the key ways you prove your worth and gain power and wealth. So work more, work harder, work your way up the org chart. Oh, or if you can't, that's okay. You know, we have all sorts of stuff to distract you from your failures along the way, like bourbon tours or CBD infused gummies or Stranger Things 8, whatever, like what are we on now? 8, 3, was it? 4, sorry, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Langrave. Um, Stand-up comedy, social media, pumpkin spice, tis the season, right? Like, you don't live to work, you work to live. So do some soul cycle, go to an orchard and swipe right, right? This is the way the world. But scripture says, God created us to work, to actually use our gifts to build civilization and to serve others. Work is worship. And more important than the results of your work is the heart of the worker. So don't build a career, pursue a calling. A calling that God has placed on your life and your heart. Uh, what about family? Well, the world says it's yeah, to you. Build, build it however you'd like, get married or don't, have one spouse, have four, divorce is no big deal. It's the decision of, of two people who are no longer compatible or who just grow out of love. And the point of marriage is individual happiness anyways, so if you're no longer happy, the right thing to do is leave. And if you have kids, don't worry. Uh, one of the most important things you have to teach your children is to be true to yourself, right? That's what the world says. Scripture says, on the flip side, family is actually the backbone. Healthy family is the backbone of a healthy society. Marriage is not a contract to opt out of, but it's a covenant where you vow before God to love your spouse self-sacrificially in sickness and in health. 
for richer or for poorer, as long as you both shall live. Scripture also says that divorce is always tragic, even when it's permissible in cases of abandonment or abuse or adultery. Even in those cases, just ask anyone who's been through it. Divorce is hard. The breaking of covenant hurts. So when husbands and wives submit to one another, as God's word calls us, and when fathers and mothers are present and engaged in the lives of their kids, we see the undeniably positive impact on society. You still with me? Are these at all helpful? I'm losing some of y'all. So let's do sex. <laughs> Welcome back to the conversation. Now, um, this is a serious one. It's a serious one. Because you know, the world says it's an appetite. Not a big deal. Has nothing to do with your soul or anything like that. And, uh, and with birth control, there's really no responsibility attached to it outside of the moment. So just feed the appetite. Have multiple partners, swing your marriage, watch pornography. Consent is all that matters in our culture. That's the way the world sees it. But uh, scripture says that sex is powerful, very powerful. It has the ability to generate life, the power to make the two one. So the way of Jesus is highly restrictive. Now, when we say that, our culture shames us, right? Maybe more than anything else right now, shames us on this one. But the reason why God put these boundaries on it that he did is because he loves us. Like I regularly hear people say all the time, like, what's the big deal? Lighten up, it's just, you know, it's just a little bit of sex. Love is love, it's an appetite. Who's ever been hurt by sex anyways? To which I think to myself, who hasn't? Who ha like name one person who, if they're honest, doesn't have some kind of deep pain from this, like betrayal, divorce, infidelity, abuse, addiction, porn, trust issues, body images, uh, issues, I insecurity in our sort of meat market culture. Our culture's attempt over the last ha uh, last half century to cheapen sex is at best naive. And at worst, it's what's led to horrible divorce spikes, abortion spikes, abuse cover-up, and the Me Too movement. Like, this is a good gift of God, no doubt, but one that we treat flippantly at our own peril. Let's do a few more. What about suffering? Um, our culture says avoid it at all costs. You got 80 years here. If you're lucky, <laughs> eat, drink, and be merry. Suffering is an interruption to real life. But what about scripture? Well, scripture says, let's, let's be realistic. Suffering is not avoidable. It's unavoidable. It's inevitable. There's not a perfect explanation in scripture for why it exists. But what we do know is that God is with us. That Jesus suffered for us. We have a God who knows what it's like to hurt. And he promises that one day, Suffering will be no more. But in the meantime, if you walk through the fires of suffering with him, he'll build your endurance and build your wisdom. What about forgiveness? Well, the world says there are some sins that we just don't forgive. You gotta cut toxic, uh, toxic people out. Cancel those who disagree on these specific things. Like there are some people, you know, those people, right? Who are not worthy of your friendship or dignity or a second chance. 
But on the flip side, Scripture says God can and will forgive anything. Nothing is beyond his redemption. Nothing is beyond his healing. Nothing you can do, to, uh, nothing you can, do can make him love you any more or any less. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And as his followers, we should take the same posture towards others, even our enemies. And last one, what about death? Well, our world says it must be, pro- like life must be prolonged as long as possible because death is the cosmic off switch. That's when things end, avoid it while you can. But scripture has a much more redeeming, beautiful picture of it. Scripture says that death is, is but a door. Death is glory. It may hurt for us, who are left here on this side of heaven. But for the saints who get to pass through to the other side, it is all glory, all beauty. Rest, paradise, and the future that we've all been waiting for. Death is a door to life after life. That's what we believe. Now, I could go on. It was only 10, okay? It was only 10. We could have done like, we could have done 20. Next time I'll do 30. Okay, now like, we could have done more. There's only 10. But, but I, want you to, I want you to get a really clear picture of how this works. As parents, as you tell Jesus' story, we have to learn how to compellingly contrast our way with the world's way. Like let your kids see just how revolutionary Christianity truly is. It is so cool in our day to be unique, authentic, like a radical nonconformist that doesn't go with the cultural flow, right? It's actually becoming a relatively common phenomenon as young adults set out and do their own thing in, uh, in adulthood to, to deconstruct their faith. You've heard of this before, right? We did a whole series on it last year, deconstruction. It's basically this coming of age script where, you, um, where you're supposed to heroically doubt the faith you inherited from your parents and slam your old church community on the way out. It's an expression of independence. Now, what I have found, though, is that deconstruction is so normal. Everybody's doing it. Okay, and you want to know what will make you truly radical, like a true revolutionary at your high school? Live in the way of Jesus. Because the way of our culture is so common. The way of Jesus is just so uncommon. All right, that's number two. One, identify and challenge the stories our popular culture is telling. Two, teach the Christian story as different and revolutionary. Last, all that having been said, last thing here. If you're gonna call your kids to a different story, you gotta model it yourself. This is the key right here. Your life is the most powerful sermon you'll preach. The person you are for all the years they live under your roof or in your town is what they will remember most. And for what it's worth, this should not be shame-inducing or guilt-inducing at all because modeling Jesus doesn't mean being perfect. Right? The scriptures are very clear. We all fall short of the glory of God. Right? None of us are perfect. Modeling Jesus is actually in those imperfect moments uh, in front of your kids, having the humility to say, you know, I confess, I'm sorry, here's what I did wrong, I repent, I'm gonna change and be better and letting them see that. So don't put too much pressure on yourself here to be perfect. Instead, just model the more perfect way. 
Here's the reality, y'all. We can't choose Jesus for our kids, and we know, we know that. Eventually, they gotta make the choice on their own. You can't control what your kids will believe about God. But you can control what they will believe about you. You can't control if your kids question God, but you can control whether they ever question you and the integrity and sincerity of your faith. So you really wanna be an intentional parent? Okay, here's the secret I've been hiding from you for four weeks now. Okay, the whole series boils down to this. Nothing that I have said in the four hours I've done preaching over the last four weeks matters if you don't get this point right. You wanna know what the most important strategy technique is? You know what it all boils down to, mom, dad? It all boils down to you having your own personal relationship with God. That's the key. You resisting the culture. You embracing the radical way of Jesus. You claiming your part in the remnant. So today I invite you to to do just that. I invite you to join me in this community, showing our kids a more faithful, more beautiful, more powerful, fearless version of Christianity that can thrive under pressure. Let's raise up the next generation by serving the poor, by building tight-knit communities, by loving scripture and praying passionately and holding on to orthodoxy so that one day our kids can light the match of revival and harvest the fruit. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer today, that you would raise up in this room a bunch of parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles elders and leaders in our community that have a personal relationship with you, an intimate one, a devoted one, an obedient one, one that shines your light into dark places, that exemplifies your truth even when we're surrounded by lies. God, give us the wisdom to know how to love our kids and teach our kids well. Give us the patience to walk with them because parenting, you never graduate from parenting. It's a lifelong journey, a long obedience in the same direction, just like everything else in the faith. And God, give us power true power that only comes from you, comes from the Holy Spirit within us to impart this incredible world-shaping story on the ones that we love the most. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your grace and we ask it into our parenting because God knows we need it. In Jesus' name.